1: I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Boutine podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious, about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. In the first part of this episode, Morgan takes a dive into the topic of exorcism and how it relates to psychology. Later in the show, we had the pleasure of speaking with Andrea Perrin, eldest daughter of five, to Carolyn and Roger. Their story was made famous by the well-known 2013 horror film The Conjuring. The Perrins, though, don't feel the movie got it right. To set the record straight, Andrea has written a trilogy of books based on her experiences in the home, titled House of Darkness, House of Light. As well, she and other members of the Perrin family have also since been involved in the documentary Bathsheba, Search for Evil, and that airs on the day that this podcast drops, Monday, March 28, 2022, at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, on t and the Travel and Escape channel in Canada. Andrea Perrin is said to press outlets in Canada that Bathsheba Search for Evil is the most in-depth interview her family has ever given on camera. Morgan and I have both seen it and recommend it highly. A summer blockbuster, The Conjuring exploded on the movie screens terrifying audiences worldwide. Some called it the scariest occult-related film since The Exorcist. Directed by James Wan, made famous by the low-budget blockbuster Saw, The movie was based on the true story of the Perrin family. The Perrins, looking for help with unexplained and increasingly disturbing events at their Rhode Island farmhouse, turned to famed paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren, played by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. In the film, forced to confront a powerful demonic entity, the Warrens found themselves caught in what they described as the most terrifying case of their lives. But what was the real story? How close was the film to what actually happened? Did it really happen at all? Was any of it right? As with many Hollywood films, the story that The Conjuring fans saw on screen was much more terrifying to those who truly experienced it. In a letter to horrormovies.ca in June 2013, Andrea Perrin wrote, The Conjuring is based on a true story, our story. However, the film is not based on my trilogy, House of Darkness, House of Light. It is instead based upon the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren. There are liberties taken and a few discrepancies, but overall, it is what it claims to be, based on a true story, believe it or not. End quote. Andrea Perrin claims that after director James Wan read her books, he refused to include some of the facts of the case that he felt were too terrifying for audiences. Andrea told Chris Janselowitz for Global Television that, quote, The Conjuring is an excellent film for what it is. It's about 95% fiction and about 5% hard truth, end quote. Located in the small country town of Harrisville, Rhode Island, Roger Perrin and his wife Carolyn purchased the home in the winter of 1970. The 200-acre property offered plenty of space for them to raise their five daughters, Andrea, Nancy, Christine, Cynthia, and April. Originally built in 1693, the Arnold Estate, as it is called, has a long storied history of hauntings and terror even up to the present day. The unexplained events for the Perrin family began on the day they moved into the farmhouse in January of 1971. As the disturbing events increased in frequency, the family became concerned and reached out for help. Ed and Lorraine Warren, actually the second group of paranormal investigators to enter the home, identified one spirit who was called Bathsheba, and she became the focus of the Conjuring film. The entity is believed to be the spirit of a nearby neighbor from the 1800s, named Bathsheba Sherman, rumored to have been involved in occult activities. However, Andrea Perrin thinks that Bathsheba has gotten a bad rap and that there were numerous entities active in the home taunting the family. She says that one of the most violent encounters occurred during a seance performed in the home by the Warrens. During that, Andrea watched as her mother Carolyn was attacked psychically and physically and flung about the room by unseen hands. The event was so violent that many present at the time, including young Andrea, thought Carolyn might perish. The film portrays Ed and Lorraine as heroes who saved the family from their ordeal, but that was not the case. After the Perron family cut ties with Ed and Lorraine in 1974, they continued living in the home, and the events continued intermittently for the next six years, none of which involved the Warrens. The Perrons moved out in June of 1980. We'll get into more of what happened in the parents' home with Andrea when we speak to her later. But first, here's Morgan with her take on exorcism.
0: Exorcism, or its root word, exorkaizine, in Greek meaning to bind by oath, has become nearly myth and legend in both Western tales, the churches, and then idolized by Hollywood history. This powerful process and ritual has been almost entirely attributed to Catholicism, although its roots stem far into places that go back centuries. Hollywood has done a great job in making a very controversial and often secretive subject relevant once again, but with a mix of both truth and, of course, Hollywood endings. The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, for example, noted that the Wright director and his adaptation of the story of Father Gary Thomas was representative of their faith, but felt that the horror aspect took away from the main character's spiritual journey. So what then is exorcism really about? And what can we take away from what is often seen as a very outdated practice? First, let's take a look at the origins of the idea Exorcism itself consists of the idea that an invading intelligence is causing distress, considered a type of possession, and needs to be removed by force. Typically, this entity is causing pain, illness, upset, and making someone's life generally miserable. According to the DSM-5, a case of possession trance disorder can only be given to those who are in distress from such possession, or belief in that condition, not those who believe or are demonstrating that they are receiving positive messages love connection with a loved one or other joyful connection with a non-physical mind in many cultures the very idea of possession is considered a positive and a highly spiritual experience often experienced by shaman or healers or channels such as esther hicks louis benjamin or jane roberts to name a few when we reach back into ancient mesopotamia for example All forms of sickness, both physical and psychological, were attributed to the supernatural, and specifically, possession. The number of spirits lying in wait to possess or overtake someone's consciousness or body was considered one of the most important factors in the daily life of a Babylonian. In order to rid these people of said illnesses, the exorcist would construct clay or wax statues and proceed to destroy them, believing that this was symbolic Of ridding the victim from whatever demon ailed them. Assyrian tablets offer the first written accounts for the treatment of illnesses in medicine which carries over into further accounts of exorcism. Often they included rituals where demons were challenged or prayer was offered but they usually related to an outside cause as the origin of the illness. If you had a cold or even something such as epilepsy it must indeed be possession. Recently, a small carving in the back of one of the Assyrian tablets was discovered. It was that of a demon said to cause benu, or epilepsy, in patients. Significant since the diagnosis of epilepsy was often related to hysteria so many years later. Homer, Socrates and Plato spoke repeatedly of demons, who believed that anyone demonstrating mental illness or insanity was under the influence of monsters. The cult of Dionysus in ancient Greece, caused the ritual to become so widespread that it was legally called to a halt in ancient Rome in 186 BC. In addition, priestesses served as channels and mediums. For example, the pronouncements of Apollo at Delphi were given through a priestess, of which were then interpreted by priests at the time, although it was later discovered that gases from the ground on where she often gave her pronouncements may have been the cause of her altered states of consciousness. Folklore is not deprived of demonic stories either. The oni of Japan are demons said to bring about storms and spoken of in ancient Japanese history. Kelpies are known in Scotland to haunt pools, waiting to drown travellers who are unaware of their presence. But it's not until the 4th century AD that we begin to see evidence of the image of exorcism which Hollywood holds so dear. Zeno of Verona writes, His face was deprived of colour. His body rises up of itself. The eyes in madness roll in their sockets and squint horribly. The teeth, covered with a terrible foam, grind between blue white lips. And limbs, twisted in all directions, are given over to trembling. He sighs. He weeps. He fears the appointed day of judgment and complains that he is driven out. He confesses the time and place he entered into man. We are all familiar with films such as The Exorcist or The Conjuring, but where is the line drawn between genuine experience and mental instability? Is there a line at all? When we began to look at possession and exorcism in the late 1880s, the formation of the Society of Psychical Research became present to combat and investigate claims of mediumship versus hysteria, We begin to see things like spiritualism, making a large contribution to the understanding of known mental health issues, which are treatable today, such as borderline personality disorder. Without the ability to examine the mind, even using a template of possible possession, we would not have the treatments of such disorders that we do today. Does this mean all cases of possession are mental illness? Well, that's up for great debate. The Catholic Church approves one in 3000 cases of exorcism a year, and only after rigorous medical testing by trained physicians and psychologists. If we take a look at the exorcist case of Roland Doe, the young Maryland boy who was reportedly possessed by the Babylonian demon Pazuzu in the 1970s, we see the interjection of J.B. Rhine, stemming from the psychology department at Duke University, and later opening a new parapsychology laboratory there. When he retired from Duke in 1965, it moved off campus and became an independent international research center. Since 1995, it's been known as the Rhine Research Center, still located in Durham, North Carolina. Many major universities became heavily interested in the idea of altered states of consciousness and what those implications actually mean for the studying of the human brain and mind. Princeton, Harvard, Edinburgh, as well as the South American universities became heavily interested in understanding the nature of psi and altered states. Today, researchers such as Alexandra Moira Almeida in Brazil are at the front lines of research into the line between paranormal and its relationship to human consciousness. In the early decades, the medical establishment treated psi experiences as pathological, regarding so-called spiritist phenomenon as disorders that threaten public health. Now things are quite different. The overlap of spiritualism and human mental health has become undeniably interlinked and if we wish to continue to understand who we are, delving into the realm of psi is becoming a necessity. Since the 1990s, scholarly interest in psi has been growing. Parapsychology began to be established in universities and religious controversies have greatly calmed down. The rite of Catholic exorcism continues to fascinate and terrify audiences all over the world, despite the advancement of the idea of possession in many other areas of research. Positive messages, such as those from channels like Esther Hicks, tend to go unnoticed as the same type of phenomenon in the eyes of viewers. In these cases, we can start to look at important techniques that are being taught, such as surrender versus overworking, or being able to still our minds, to allow apparent non-physical communication and sigh. Many, such as Edgar Cayce or Leonora Piper, were documented at length and delivered positive messages through trance states and automatic writing, among other things. Piper herself described the experience as follows. I feel as if something were passing over my brain, making it numb. A sensation similar to that when I experienced under ether. Only the unpleasant odor of the ether is absent. I feel a little cold too. Not very, just a little. As if a cold breeze passed over me and people and objects become smaller until they finally disappear. And then I know nothing more until I wake up when the first thing I'm conscious of is a bright, very, very bright light. And then darkness, such darkness. My hands and arms begin to tingle just as one's foot tingles after it's been asleep. And I see, as if from a great distance, objects and people in the room, but they're very small and very black. Leonora described the entity as an elderly man who passed away in 1860 and who later was replaced by another personality named George, a deceased acquaintance known to the investigator, Richard Hodgson. Controversy, however, was rampant, but real or not, Piper believed that she was possessed by these personalities with no ill will or ill effects, which is the very crux of the classification of possession trance disorder in the DSM-5. The causes and outcomes of possession vary from violent and tragic to beautiful and enlightening, and I believe there are things to be learned from it, as I mentioned above if it is indeed a real phenomenon then we must conclude that there is a consciousness being a collective or otherwise that is more than excited to guide us forward it addresses the age-old question of are we alone and if possession is real the answer is inevitably no it opens up the hard problem again is consciousness emergent or fundamental if it is not fundamental we must start to look at the mind in a new way If people who exhibit possession-like symptoms, such as knowing information they would have no way of obtaining, or relaying enlightened knowledge, then we must take a deeper look at how the mind is forming and retaining information. Either way, the phenomenon of possession and exorcism is a fascinating look into human history and the human future. It has graced our theatres, our science, and medical textbooks, psychology, and has helped to shape psychoanalysis. It's brought forth fear, and comfort to people for centuries. Bringing exorcism into the realm of scientific exploration is both a venture into anthropology and wonder, and will continue to hold its place in the halls of legend for years to come.
1: Next up is our interview with author and one of the real-life subjects of the true story on which The Conjuring film is loosely based, Andrea Perrin. Andrea graduated with a degree in philosophy and English from Chatham College in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She has spent many years engaging in a variety of creative endeavors as a professional singer, songwriter, musician, and actor. For more than 20 years, Andrea was a cast member with the Theatre Company of Rhode Island, performing on the stage of the Assembly Theatre, the historic centerpiece of Harrisville. Despite her many creative accomplishments, for Andrea, writing is her true passion in 2007 she began writing a manuscript that has evolved into the three volumes of house of darkness house of light spawning some nightmares while exhuming memories of the dead revisiting a past that mapped the future for andrea and her family here's our interview with andrea Perrin.
0: i am thrilled and excited Andrea Perrin is here with us on Supernatural Circumstances today, and we are thrilled to have you because you've had not only such incredible experiences throughout your life, but also because of your overall message of of positivity. And that's something like both Mike and I have been so driven to present to the world over with with parapsychology and, and things
2: like that. So welcome Thank you. I really appreciate you bringing me on your broadcast and I you know to to grow my very large group of friends north of the border in Canada <laughs> is always delightful for me.
0: Well, you you've got us now. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> I do.
0: So let's get into this a little bit because the the, the movie and, and the documentaries and everything that has come out over the last number of years about Bathsheba, about this subject, about this story, you know, most people, I think, know about this from the movie The Conjuring. And this documentary is not that. Can you talk to
2: us a little bit about that? Well, this was one of the few documentaries that I've done um, that included almost every member of my family. Um, My mother declined um, uh, simply because of her health and not being able to travel to do an interview. Uh, But everybody else, uh, every living member of my family participated in this. Um, And I think in spirit, even my baby sister, April, who passed away uh, this month in uh, 2017, uh, very suddenly and tragically. And I, you know, I do have to say, that had I, had I not grown up in an environment where I was routinely exposed to the other side of existence, I don't even know how I would have been able to cope with her loss um, because she was uh, the youngest member of our family. She was uh, just two weeks shy of her 52nd birthday. And um, she came to each and every one of us almost immediately and it was so easy to recognize that oh yes this is her that you know there there is there's no other way that this would have happened only she knew about this you know i mean it was that kind of a thing and in fact she passed away in her sleep and the first thing that she did was come to my sister cindy as a full body apparition
0: wow that's wonderful
2: She had to, because she didn't know she was dead.
1: Mm.
2: Wow! And Cindy had to help her cross. Um, And I, you know, that, that changed everything, Mm. you know, it changed everything. It not only um, fundamentally changed our family by fracturing our hearts, um, but it also confirmed everything that we each individually know about supernatural activity and how incredibly real it is.
1: So before everything started, what uh if any were family spiritual practices or beliefs? Did did your family have any kind of belief in the afterlife or higher power or anything like that?
2: That was um a disservice that was done by the conjuring uh to my family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> among several, um, because I guess in Hollyweird, where <laughs> they conjure up these stories, um, they needed to make it seem as though the devout Roman Catholic Warrens were juxtaposed to the godless heathen parents. Gotcha. Um, and right. And nothing could have been further from the truth. It was the one thing of all the things in the film that my mother could have taken great exception to. Um, that was um, that was the thing that really disturbed her, because not only does it misrepresent our family, but it it misrepresents um, experiencers in the field. Um, most most people who have extreme hauntings are actually deeply connected to spirit um through a religious belief or you know whatever doctrine they espouse uh not so many you know godless heathens that have experiences like this
1: yeah is not um, funny
2: <laughs> yeah i know well i th-
0: i think you know it, when you you look back on on parapsychology and and the studies and and the people that like you say have have experienced this stuff I think you know when you've got people that are that that don't believe that it can happen to them I mean you know they're not they're not really setting themselves up or opening themselves up to experiences of of any kind and I mean we see this reflected in in you know, Gansfeld experiments and remote viewing mm-hmm. experiments and things like that, where people that believe that this type of thing is a possibility, that there is more out there, they will typically have more experiences or ha- and have better luck with remote viewing and, and things like that than people who just think that, nope, there's nothing and we're all meat suits walking around and
2: all of that. So that makes, it makes sense. It does. And you know, we were, when we moved into the house Um, we, my parents purchased it in December of 1970, um, and we moved in a few weeks later. Um, and, you know, ghosts weren't on the radar for Mm -hmm. us. We were all born and raised Catholic. My mother converted to Catholicism to marry my father. She was a Southern Baptist originally. Um, and back in that, in those days, you really, you know, one partner had to convert, Uh, If there was a difference in religions, which is, you know, insane, but it's how it was. And, uh, you know, we were all baptized. We were all we all made our confirmation. I mean, our first communions. And I mean, we were, you know, we were a church going family um, and went to St. Aidan's Parish in Cumberland, Rhode Island. Uh, Once we moved there when I was about, I think, maybe five. Or six when we moved from our original family home in Willimantic, Connecticut. Um, it was, uh, it, ghosts weren't on the radar for a number of reasons. Um, I think that, you know, both of my parents are very pragmatic Virgos, and, you know, reality is what they can see and, and smell and taste and hear and touch. Um, You know, they're five sensory 3D pragmatists. And both of them were over the course of the 10 years that we lived at that farm. I mean, my mother was practically an atheist. She just wanted to marry my father and she would have done anything to do it. So, you know, she went to Catholic school, you know, preparatory marriage Catholic school, I don't know what it's called, but um, just so that uh this union could take place Mm -hmm. and they had been together for 14 years and produced five children uh before we moved to that farmhouse um when the word ghost came up it was uh in church the father the son the holy ghost uh or It was, who wants to be the ghost for Halloween? I've got one sheet that I'm willing to carve holes into. I mean, that was it. The only even remote um, contact that anybody in the family had with anything paranormal um, was uh, Dark Shadows Mm -hmm. that I used to race home from school uh, to watch in the afternoon. And... You know, the rest of my sisters were generally outside playing, had no interest in it at all. And I just thought that, um, you know, Barnabas Collins was a pretty fascinating character, but I didn't. And nor do I believe in vampires. I don't. Um, But I just thought it was fascinating. And it was uh, a show that I kind of got hooked on. But I was literally the only one in my family that had any interest in even the broadest perspective on on the genre. Um, well, and
0: being such a non-believer, this must have been such a a challenge for them, not only just on the the physical side of of dealing with a haunting like this, but a paradigm shift at such a core level for people who have never experienced, but also you know maybe didn't believe at all, like you were saying about your your mom.
2: Well, it was, um, my father was deeply faithful. Uh, He went to parochial school. He was an altar boy for most of his youth. Uh, He joined the Navy uh, during the Korean War right out of high school. And then um, he met my mother and she was the one that really shifted everything for him because his intention had been to, do a tour of service and then go directly into the seminary to become a priest.
1: So how did it all, how did it all start?
2: Um, uh, It started within five minutes of moving into the farm. Wow. Um, And yet we had visited the farm a number of times uh, prior maybe it I, as a whole family, at least five or six times that we spent the day with Mr. Kenyon, who we bought the farm from. And um, none of us, you know, believe me, I, I went back with every member of my family. And as I was writing my books, a trilogy called House of Darkness, House of Light, which is the real story behind The Conjuring, um, I was able to include Uh, the vast majority of the uh, incidents that occurred with every member of my family because April was still alive when I was writing the books. And so I'm grateful that her stories got to be included uh, completely uh, in the trilogy. Um, But I will tell you that none of us have any memory at all of seeing uh, or feeling anything untoward at the farm prior to the day that we moved in. And we spent many, many hours there uh, prior to my parents signing the papers. It was almost as if they were lurking and just waiting behind the curtain, you know, just uh, kind of checking us out, but we didn't have you know the the opportunity to check them out. And I think that it was because, we were really supposed to have that experience and making their presence known prematurely might have uh, stopped that transaction dead in its tracks. So I don't know. That's pure speculation on my part. Um, But the day that we moved in, uh, I walked into the house first with a box off the back of the moving van. Uh, it was freezing cold. It was January 11th, 1971. We were in the midst of a a swirling uh, snow and ice storm that day. But if you're a good hearty Yankee and it's moving day, then you move. Um, it sounds like Alberta. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, what's a foot of snow? Really? Oh. You're going to let that stop you? Forget um, it. <laughs> yeah, I know. So Uh, You know, I can completely relate uh, to to all of you. Um, However, when I walked in the house, Mr. Kenyon was um, I went in the front door into the parlor because it was the closest door. And I knew that was that made me a little closer to maybe some warmth. And um, I rounded the corner from the parlor into the dining room. And Mr. Kenyon was standing at the table packing up some items from uh, his, his uh, China cabinet. right? And I said, good morning. I put the box down on the table, started chatting with him, didn't notice anything else. And then I picked up the box and I started walking into the kitchen to bring the box marked kitchen to my mother in the kitchen. And there was a man standing between me and the doorway that I needed to go through to get to the kitchen. Um, And so as I started walking past him, I said, good morning, sir. And he did not respond to me. He looked as flesh and blood as any living soul I've ever met. I did not identify him as anything other than maybe an oddly dressed neighbor who had come to say goodbye and felt like it was perfectly okay to ignore children. Um, I went into the kitchen, I asked my mother who the man was with Mr. Kenyon. She said to me, there's nobody with Mr. Kenyon, his son's on the way, he's not here yet. I'm sure I thought, okay, it you know must be a neighbor or something. And I do remember thinking, that he was oddly dressed and wondering, you know, like, does everybody out here dress like that? Because we were out in the <laughs> right, compared to where we came from, you know, and I was just a kid and I was used to, you know, a certain kind of, uh, I, I don't know, I guess, couture, <laughs> suburban couture, you know, in the 70s was, uh, you know, bell bottoms and peace signs and tie dye. And this guy looked like he had made his outfit before he came. Um, And uh, and then my sister Christine came in and she saw him and he appeared quite alive to her. And she came in the kitchen and said, you know, Mom, who's the guy with Mr. Kenyon? Well, my mother's unpacking boxes. She's got my five year old sister April by her side because she was too small to help unpack. And so she kept her as her little helper in the kitchen. And then uh, Cindy comes in. I've already gone out the kitchen door and I'm heading back to the truck. Christine's right behind me. Cindy comes into the kitchen and she's like, mom, who's that man with Mr. Kenyon? He's dressed funny. And my mother was just like, "Um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, His son's on the way. Uh, go get me another box. You know, she didn't have time to go look and investigate anything and nothing like that even occurred to her. Um, And then uh, Nancy came in before Cindy left the kitchen, Nancy came in behind her and she leaned over and she said, Sin, did you see that man with Mr. Kenyon? I did, but he just disappeared.
0: Wow. And
2: that all happened within the first five to 10 minutes that we were moving into the farm. Later in the day, Mr. Kenyon and my father were talking in the middle of the house, which was the dining room. And four of the five of us who had seen this man earlier were standing in there because the truck had been unloaded and we were all together in the house warming up. And my father could see that Mr. Kenyon was, you know, just so forlorn about having to leave his home. And my dad was telling him that it would be perfectly okay with as much space as we had in the house, if he just wanted to stay and live with us. It was a very touching and a very tender moment. I believe. Um, And Mr. Kenyon declined because he said his son would not allow it. Wow. Um, uh, Which was heartbreaking. And suddenly, that man is standing in the corner of, of the dining room again. And all four of us are looking at each other, of the children, looking at each other like, I see him. Do you see him? Do you see him? I see him. Nobody said a word. And Mr. Kenyon and my father did not see that apparition. Only we, the children, did.
0: That's as fascinating. And it's so interesting with these experiences how that type of thing will happen where there's a, a couple of people that will observe something or a group of people that will observe something and then either observe it differently or, you know, there'll be people that in the room that are just out of tune with it or whatever seems to be going on. There was a huge escalation in events as, as we know from the documentary and and things like that, right up to the, the warrants. Coming in and pushing a pushing the idea of a seance on your parents at the time. Yeah, what that that to me really it it really struck me because as a as a researcher myself, you know, I've always been I've always been one to to really understand that the the client really is the first and foremost important thing the living is is the thing that you're supposed to be focused on and this always really struck me can we can you talk about the seance a little bit do you think that was that was a genuine possession
2: i think it was incredibly irresponsibly handled yeah that it should never have happened in the first place that the warrens had i think the best of intentions but they were way over their heads. Um, The uh, medium that they brought with them committed what I consider to be spiritual malpractice. You do not throw open wide the gates to the netherworld and conjure the spirits in a supremely haunted house where five children live um, without having some expectation that something will come through that you might not be able to handle. And that is exactly what happened. She ended up unconscious on the table. My mother was picked up in the chair in which she sat and was thrown 20 feet into the middle of our parlor where her head struck the floor. And every person that was in that house that night, including me and my sister, Cindy, who were watching this happen, we're quite certain that we had just seen our mother die i believe it it was it, was. it just
0: sounded so so violent and so sudden it was it, it, it just, was. it was just unbelievable so when when they when they approached with this idea how did how did the how did the séance start was this the slow build to to the violence did this happen quickly was this a quick escalation what what happened there
2: uh, my father had come home from uh, being out on the road for about a week. He had his own uh, jewelry business. Uh, and so he traveled quite a bit. His trunk uh, always full of uh, fashion and fine jewelry because Providence at the time was like the jewelry capital of the world. And um, he had been gone for probably about a full week and came home. He was very tired. Um It was August of uh, 1974, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Warren had reached out to my mother earlier in the day. Now, keep in mind cell phones had not been invented yet. Um, And they called from uh, Connecticut, where they lived, and asked if they could stop by that night. And my mother, you know, reluctantly agreed to let them come um of course at that point we knew who they were they had uh been to the house several times uh, and when my father came home he's like nope nope call him back I'm watching the Red Sox play tonight and we're having dinner together and I don't want company and nope call him back and tell them not to come well they had already left Connecticut there was no way to catch them on the road um and so he was really agitated about it and uh my mother seeing um, how uh, negative he was being told us to start calling around to girlfriends and see, it was a Friday night. So um, she wanted us to disperse from the house in case, you know, dad were to get ugly. And, um, And only Nancy could find somebody to go spend the night with. So the other four of us were in the house when they arrived and it wasn't just them, it was an entire entourage of people, uh, cinematographers with huge cameras and you know, tons of equipment and an audio specialist with a big reel-to-reel and uh, a priest and the medium, the Warrens. Well, my father's head blew off his shoulders. No kidding. And wow. the more angry he got, the more my mother shut down. Because as soon as they came in, they started talking about, we're here to conduct a seance. And my father's attitude about that was, oh hell no, you're not. No, you are not doing anything like that in this house. And uh, the priest and Ed Warren uh, took my father off to a secluded spot and talked to him for quite some time. Uh, Lorraine Warren took her life into her own hands Uh, that day because um she looked my father dead in the eye and she said if you love your wife you'll let us do this so it was like you know it was like an ultimatum like if you don't let us do this then you don't love your wife and oh my god you know ed and the priest had to remove him from the room i mean he was so angry Um, and so, uh, you know, it just got worse and worse. And my mother just sat there on the sofa with her head hanging down, you know, tears in her eyes. She didn't want to do this. She didn't know what to do. And she started to become almost catatonic. Um, when they came back out of the room, uh, the children, myself included, were dismissed told to go upstairs, close doors, don't come downstairs for any reason. Well, you know how long that lasted. Of course, yeah. Um, Yeah, Christine was the only one that actually followed directions and she stayed in her bedroom, laying in her bed crying right directly over all hell breaking loose below her uh, because her room was directly above the dining room where this all took place. And um, it all happened within, after they all came together, my father refused to participate. He did not want to participate. And Ed told him, you know, that he absolutely had to, that his energy was necessary for my mother's protection. You know, and my father still, you know, at this point, he's like, this isn't real, this can't be happening. You know I mean? He had accepted it and yet not, and he did not think that this ritual, um, was going to be in any way, uh, uh, you know, in any way, a positive yielding a positive outcome. And he was absolutely right about that.
0: Yeah. There was that type of energy. I mean, it, that type of, you know, just intention just from, from the living people. I mean, you, you can't be you know, vibrating at that frequency and have stuff end well, like that, you know, that's, right. that's just, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, the, um, uh, the medium started um, speaking in, I believe, Latin. Um, and um, she had little pouches of stuff, you know, kind of crystals and, and what looked like fairy dust and, you know, stuff, they, they lit candles. Um, and uh, within a few moments, it was as if a hurricane force wind came through that room and blew out the candles, there was no light. Uh, other than uh, residual light from other rooms. Um, And my mother slumped down in her chair and then threw back her head and howled like a creature from another realm. Um, This was not spirit. Whatever it was that had been invited in by the medium went to the weakest link, which was my mother. And I will not call it a possession, um, but my mother was attacked. Right, And whatever it was, uh, briefly attacking her in this way spoke through her in a language that is either so ancient that there's no record of it or that does not exist on this planet. And it uh, started lifting the table and then the table, which was a couple of hundred pounds anyway, solid rock maple. Um, hit the table, the table hit the floor so hard, it left um, impressions where the feet hit the wood. Uh, And then my mother started, um, she was curling up in a ball in the chair, like to the extent you would expect to hear bones breaking. This is not something that they would even consider um, using in The Conjuring because uh, according to James Wan, it would have literally run people out of the theater. Um, and so they toned it down so significantly that you get what you get in The Conjuring. Yeah. Uh, but you know, there was no blood. My mother was elevated in the chair in which she sat about a foot off the floor. And then in a split second, and I do mean, this is not hyperbole, measure how long a second is, and then shave about nine-tenths of it off. And in that amount of time, she and the chair that she was sitting in were heaved straight across the room. And that's when she went down on the floor in the parlor and struck her head.
0: I can't imagine the trauma that you guys experience because of that. And it brings up some some questions as well about, about Warner Brothers and things like that. Mike, did you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, um, you mentioned that James Wan was a little nervous about telling the truth. Um, why do you think it was that he and uh, Warner Brothers were really afraid of really getting into what actually happened what your family really experienced was it just for storytelling purposes or was there something that they were afraid of
2: that's it bingo right on the nose you know we're all fear-based carbon units to one extent or another um and i'm using this phrase verbatim from james i was scared shitless when i read your books
1: Mm. wow
2: He's like, I, he would not even go look at the farm. They had actually contracted for the possibility of doing some filming at the actual farmhouse with the then owner. Um, and after he read my books, he not only canceled that deal, but he refused to even go to Rhode Island uh, as though like the whole state was contaminated because of, you know, I don't know. Um, but uh, they ended up picking a house in Wilmington, North Carolina, to um, to film the movie because he would not go anywhere near that property um, and has not been there to this day, even though he's been, I'm sure, offered the opportunity many times, he will not. Um, and he was terrified. And so you know, I, I get that I totally do. You know, also keep in mind that The Conjuring um, was based on, and and I mean loosely based on uh, the story as told by the Warrens. Right. And you know, the Warrens, I'm sure, in their case files, made sure that um, they. Uh, were represented well in their telling of the story, you know, to the victor goes the spoils. And they're the ones that write the history Um, until I came along and told the real truth.
1: So you've, you've Uh, written written a lot more about this. Um, And you have uh, signed a movie deal regarding your books, correct?
2: uh, Yes. It's actually, um, uh, I didn't sign anything yet because I've, reconsidered what to do with this mm. three feature films will not tell that story right
0: Understandable. so what my
2: screenwriter and i have done is we've torn our screenplays apart and we've turned them into um 30 episodes for a three season uh docudrama oh
1: wow that's a which great idea will
2: thoroughly thoroughly explore all the ramifications of this story and dig very deeply into um, the effect that this kind of activity has on humanity, focusing on the seven members of my family, but other characters as well that came and went from that farm that were touched by spirit and um, had, uh, and it changed their lives completely. Uh, several, in fact. Um, So, you know, it's it's just too big a Mm. story for feature films. And, you know, I don't fault anybody um, who made The Conjuring. They put their whole heart and soul into that movie. Everybody that was involved. I know them all. Um, The young ladies who played us couldn't have been sweeter, Mm -hmm. um, more charming uh, individuals. Uh, I got letters from everybody associated with that film when my sister April passed away oh wow Uh, I mean and it was years it was four years after the film had already come and gone and and yet they were all so touched by her loss that they all reached out to us in some way or another do you think there Uh, were things that
0: they got right in the movie yes
2: Yeah, like four or five little tiny things. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I feel certain of it. No, really, Morgan. At least a couple, right? Well, you know, it's interesting because there are things about the film that I refer to as cosmic kisses of the film.
0: Oh, that's lovely. I like that.
2: The way that the universe told me that it was okay. Yeah. That it was the way that it was, that it was told um, in such a way that, you know, those that were interested more than having, uh, you know, a a knee jerk reaction and an adrenaline shot in a theater who really wanted to know the story would find it. And they have um, by, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have read my trilogy of books and uh, it makes The Conjuring look like grainy black and white versus Technicolor Disney on steroids, uh, you know, in, in the real story. Um, but I find that the people who gravitate to it are prepared for it. Mm-hmm. They're emotionally prepared. They're spiritually prepared. They gravitate to the truth in all things. And so it has changed uh, innumerable lives. You cannot read the trilogy without being changed on the other side of it. You've had some amazing,
0: just amazing experiences just, you know, overall. And I think, I think we're a- all three of us are on the the same page about how the universe really does come together to create so many of these amazing experiences and there are no coincidences. No, there aren't. There really aren't. And, you know, and do you think that there were, there were positives that you, that you took away from this that you wouldn't have gotten if you hadn't have had these experiences? Oh God. Yes.
2: Oh, absolutely. And, and in fact um, I'm so grateful to have grown up in uh, an environment where I got to learn at a very young age that we don't live in a 3d five sensory world. We live in a multidimensional universe. And I got to discover that at the tender age of 12 and I'm 63 now. (laughs) So for more than half a century, I've lived a paranormal life.
0: Yeah, I, I so identify with that because for me, my first experiences were at nine and Mike had his experiences quite early as well. And, uh, you know, I think I think we've all been been touched by that. And it really does. It changes how you look at the world when you're introduced yeah. this, to this stuff at, a, at an early age. And I, don't, for, I know for myself, it's really taken away the I think a fear of death and a fear of uh, just things falling apart and and, and whatnot. And mm-hmm. I have found that it's really changed my perspectives in that way. And I know, Mike, you felt similar for, you know, in, in terms of this stuff.
1: This way of looking at the world, you know, you can't possibly feel the same way after after having an experience like you've had. Um, yeah. And I'm sure you're, it has deepened and uh, broadened your sense of spirituality as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Well, I will tell you that I, th- I think that my mother was secretly an atheist, um, uh, or it's certainly at least agnostic when we moved into that farm.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: when we moved out, she was a deeply faithful woman. Um, the thing, the most important thing that she learned from the farm and the most important thing that I learned from the farm is to have no fear of death because we know there is something beyond our mortal existence. This is not a matter of faith or a belief or Mm -hmm. conjecture on our part. We know and there's a quantum leap of difference between believing something and knowing something. Um, So as uh, you know, my mother's 82 now and in failing health. And yet, you know, I, I, I visit with her frequently and Never once has she expressed, you know, she's like, when it's my time, it's my time. You know, let's party till I go. You know, I mean, she's just (laughs) she's so, you know, she's just bless her heart. She's so sweet. But yes, it fundamentally changed um, my trajectory in life. When we moved to that farm, I was quite certain that uh, I was going to grow up to be a veterinarian. Yeah. And now I'm an ordained minister with a degree in philosophy, um, which I felt compelled to explore when I went off to college um, because I needed some answers. I needed to uh, understand more deeply what the um, religious and spiritual implications were of what we were experiencing at the farm. Um, right. And that ultimately changed my entire trajectory in life.
0: Yeah, I, it's so interesting that you say that because throughout all of my research over the years and um, you know, my great-great-grandfather, he changed his trajectory in the same way. He was, used to be a, a, a physician and then he ended up becoming very steeped in, in parapsychology and, and things like that. And I found that no matter whose story you look at, it really is a calling for so many people, it becomes so much more than just, uh, an interest. It's just, it's so much deeper than that. Have you felt that as well, that it's just been, been a a pull or a calling? It's something that you just, you've just got to do.
2: Yes. And I ignored it for 30 years. I did. I've got, I was threatened with expulsion from high school and I was a goody two shoes, straight A college preparatory student. Who uh, answered a question from a um, classmate who went home and started telling his parents about me and the haunted house. And they promptly called the school and threatened the principal who promptly called me into the principal's office and threatened me with expulsion if I ever said another word about anything having to do with ghosts Mm. um and so i shut my mouth and i kept it that way for many many years um at least three decades this was not something that i spoke about with anybody beyond a very close circle of uh friends and of course my immediate family
1: yes societally we see a lot of people shaming people who have these kind of beliefs. So it's interesting. We don't hear about it more because probably people think, well, if I say something, people are going to say I'm nuts.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I got to the age uh, that I didn't care anymore. Right. I really, I thought that the message was more important than um, the madness that might surface around it. Uh, You know, and I, and I'm not talking about madness in terms of the paranormal community. I'm talking about the madness that surfaces outside of it by those who are scared to death that we're telling the truth.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head with that because I've found for the longest time, you know, whether I'm I'm doing a lecture or anything like that, or, or working on a, in a classroom or whatever I happen to be doing, that usually the the skeptics are often coming from that place of fear, and it's yeah. usually a place of lack of education.
2: Yeah, yeah, or lack of experience, or lack of experience, absolutely. No. And just because, you know, these are the kind of people that say, well, that's never happened to me. So therefore it can't happen at all. Yeah. You know, well, I think it comes back to that. It totally, it
0: totally is. And, and it's it's so egocentric, you know, at the end of the day, it's so egocentric and, and, you know, I think it comes back full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is this stuff changes people's paradigms. It makes them challenge the paradigms that they've they've held and that they've had and if you're one of those people that are skeptical or you know really clinging to the more materialist view of the world this can really rattle your bones to the to the core of their being if if you're so yes. clinging to that to that outlook let's talk a little bit about your show a world awakening because i think you've got such a great message And you really and it's it's such a great demonstration of how you can turn something that someone could easily become bitter and frightened over and turn it into something that is a positive platform for people. Can you tell everybody a little bit about that show?
2: Well, um, I relaunched it as a a YouTube show and then KGRA picked me up internationally uh, and went into syndication about maybe seven or eight months ago, and I have viewers on six continents, um, which is, I think, a necessity if we're going to get the message out about how to cope with this period in uh, the spiritual uh, growth and evolution of humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, There are, you know, I I, I don't live in, you know, with butterflies and unicorns. and even though I wear rose colored glasses, because I think it really kind of is the only way to look at this world, Absolutely. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I don't let it discolor my um, perceptions of reality. And we're living at a very difficult time in the course of human history. Uh, everything is changing now. I believe that this is the paradigm shift that this is when we humanity go through a global shift in consciousness and come to a higher frequency of being and that um, uh, all the lower life forms um, uh, in terms of consciousness, uh, Putin, for instance, um, will uh, be dispelled from this planet and that we will go forward hopefully into a future of peace. Uh, so all hell is breaking loose right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this is the main focus of what I do on a world awakening. You know, I've been dealing with, uh, the global pandemic where, you know, how important is the notion of, um, An afterlife during a time when we're losing our nearest and dearest to an invisible virus worldwide. I think that it makes the, uh, the whole genre more pertinent and poignant um, and gives people hope and uh, at least uh, a notion that they can still communicate with their loved ones, even though they are no longer in a vessel Um, and You know, then, of course, uh, we dealt with now this is just since I've relaunched the show. It used to be a blog talk radio show years and years ago. And then I relaunched it as video, YouTube, Facebook and every place else on the planet. Um, And then, of course, we dealt with uh, the uh, deliberate murder of George Floyd and the aftermath of that and how it fundamentally changed the world and perceptions around the world. And so, you know, in some ways, you know, yes, I do march with my feet. I also march with my mouth as a spiritual warrior for peace. And that is not a counterintuitive concept. And in fact, I have come to understand that in 3D reality, one necessitates the other. You must vanquish what is evil on the planet. Evil, pure, unadulterated evil exists on earth. And, you know, some people say, oh, you know, good, evil, they're just concepts. And I say, go turn on the news. Yeah. Go Take a look at what's happening in the world right now. Go take a look at what's happening in Afghanistan right now. Mm-hmm. You know, that's off the that's off the circuits. You know, we deal we deal with things like that. Um, it's hard for me because, you know, I always I wouldn't even want to be here anymore if I didn't have a a, a a truly rudimentary belief that good conquers evil and love conquers fear and that all will be well in the end. And if it's not well yet, then it's not the end. Yeah, I I love that. Yeah, well, that you can thank John Lennon for that. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, I just borrowed it. But he said I could. I talked to him just before (laughs) we did the show.
1: I've sort of been thinking about this and I heard a quote years ago. um, I think that this is just the storm before the calm you know, like Mm -hmm. a a lot of things have to happen. Uh, An old friend of mine used to tell me a spiritual sort of one of my spiritual gurus used to say, Mike, you know, you have to get through the bramble bushes before you get to the picnic. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I think we're as a world right now, we're in the bramble bushes on our way to the picnic.
2: You know what? In terms of alliteration. Mm-hmm. change it up a little bit you got to walk through the pickies to get to the picnic there you go <laughs> ah that's
1: <laughs> yeah right
2: well and you know i think i i i think
0: it's also to use another analogy it you know when you've got dirt in the bottom of a glass of water and you want to fill that glass up you know you pour that water in and all the dirt rises to the surface and i think I think this world and I think love right now is very similar to that, where it's like if you've yeah. got if you've got a lot of dirt that's settled and you pour love onto that, what happens is you know that dirt's gonna rise to the surface and it, it rises to the surface to get cleaned up. You know, it I th- does. It really does, and and it doesn't mean like you were saying that it's the end of the road or that it's the last chapter or anything like that. But it's it's there so that we we can clean it up and move on. And and so I I love that
2: about what you're saying. It's really really great. Well, I use the show to bring on a real eclectic mix of guests, uh, you know, most of whom are friends of mine that I've gotten to know over the last dozen years or so that bring something to the discourse, yeah. that bring a new perspective, a fresh idea, you know, that uh, have an ability to uh, conceptualize and articulate uh, perspectives that maybe people have not thought about before because my My whole approach to a world awakening is that thoughts are things. And that if we project out into the ether, into the frequency, you know, like the pebble in the pond and the concentric circles go all the way to the shore because it's a creation of energy. I talk about love being an action word, a verb instead of a noun, you know, that it's the, the putting into our progress will come when we make love a verb and we show our ability mm-hmm. to interact and to support and, and feel compassion for our fellow human beings and all life forms on this living planet. And when we get there, you know, so it's kind of like it's, it's two hours every Friday night, Eastern time of uh, uh, raising awareness, consciousness raising, bringing people to a higher headspace um, and making them think instead of just reactively feel everything that's coming at us right now. So I think in that respect, it fulfills uh, a very valuable need. I I agree.
0: And, and, you just said something that Mike and I touch on constantly on this show, which is thoughts become things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when we are, when we're focused and we have that intention and we make that decision, it's incredible what the universe will do to back up and, and promote the reality that you have, that you've projected out there. Like it's, it will go to endless lengths. So I, I love that about, (laughs) love Mm -hmm. that about this. Uh, We are wrapping up to the, the end of our time, um, and this has been such an incredible pleasure, Andrea, and thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This is just, it's just wonderful to talk to you. And like you were saying, to, to make a new friend, we'd love to have you back. At oh, anytime. Point. This has yep. just been, been great. Um, and I'll take a, a couple of seconds here to let the audience know, where they can watch this show <laughs> because this is it's gonna be amazing. And it's on tonight, it's on March 28th, tonight on the TNE Network in Canada, Bathsheba Search for Evil, and it's at 8 p.m. Eastern. And we are just, ex- yeah, excited to see it. Mike and I got the privilege of, of getting a chance to watch it before this, and it was absolutely fabulous. I highly recommend everybody <laughs> take the time DVR it do whatever you gotta do but but definitely watch it because it's it's really incredible and we're really looking forward to whatever you decide to do with your the story and the 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 mini series the docuseries all of that so thank you andrea so much oh
2: it's my pleasure entirely thank you mike thank you morgan uh this has been uh, a delight for me and you both know we just scratched the surface. Yeah, for sure. So you let me know whenever you want. I'll be filming all next week up in. Oh, I can't even say. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, oh. I can. I can. Um, no, I can't. Never mind. Non disclosure. Non disclosure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not yep. just, yeah. I was like, oh, damn. I signed that piece of paper. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, we're, you know, we're working on uh, a number of projects. I told one of my producers we should call our company global pandemic productions because we got so much done in the last two and a half years from my mam cave and computer and him over in California. And it's like, Oh my God, so much. Um, but yeah, this has been a uh, delightful for me and I always appreciate it when I'm given the opportunity to speak my truth. Uh, and I invite everybody not only to watch Bathsheba um, search for evil, the best documentary made on this subject hands down no competition yeah Uh, really i mean that um and a wonderful crew of people but i also want to invite everybody to uh join us on a world awakening Mm -hmm. on friday nights uh 9 to 11 eastern time and uh also if you're up for it and you think you've got the wherewithal uh dare to uh, order house of darkness house of light volumes one two and three will alter your perspective on the entire universe so thank you both very much for having me on
1: thank you so much andrea you're a wonderful human being thank you (laughs) again bathsheba search for evil airs on the day this podcast drops monday march 28th at 8 p.m eastern and pacific on TNE, the travel and escape channel in Canada. Please check the TE website for dates and times of subsequent airings. Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare.
0: In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called the Universal Manager. This is a great process to use when you're feeling overwhelmed with a lot on your plate. We tend to forget when we have a lot going on that we are not alone. We might feel that way when we look around us. Maybe your coworkers aren't helping out. You're running your own business and there's still a lot to do. Bills might be piling up. Whatever it is for you, there is a non-physical help we need to remember and can call on. Take a piece of paper And draw a line down the middle. On one half, title the column, the universe, source, God, non-physical energy, whatever feels good for you. On the second column, title it, you. You are about to turn a whole bunch of worries over to your universal manager. It's waiting to unleash its help and is awaiting some instruction. Write down the things you don't want to deal with, the things that feel too big, too out of control, too time consuming. Now, under the category of you, write down what you feel you can feel good about getting done. Don't overwhelm your side of the list. Remember, you can't overtax non-physical energy. Once you're done, know that it is taken care of. Your list has been read and understood and the universal manager is on it. Remember, don't micromanage the universe. It's a better planner, organizer and is more efficient than you let it go feel the relief focus on your list and watch what happens you need nothing to be happy but you need something to be sad And remember at the end of seeking all is consciousness stay in peace everyone
1: thank you for listening to this episode of supernatural circumstances a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at entityseeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at darkpatine.com. Feel free to email the show at supernatural circumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now.